This is the Serial and Midnight Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Serial and Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland, and this episode marks the return of J.R. Bookwalter to Serial and Midnight. We know him as the filmmaker behind The Dead Next Door, Robot Ninja, Ozone, and so much more. He is back in the director's chair for the first time in over two decades with a new movie. Side effects may vary. It's a very fun, very gory horror movie uh, that you can catch in your town, they are touring. J.R. Bookwalter and his his lead, his his screenwriter, producer, James L. Edwards, are touring the country with side effects may vary. They may very well be coming to a theater near you. We're going to talk about all of that. What What's it like to direct now versus directing in the late 80s, the early 90s, uh, the early aughts? What's changed? What's different? We're going to find out how Sam Raimi helped bring the dead next door to undead life. We're going to talk about Robot Ninja. Uh, there's really a lot of great stuff here, and you know we love uh, independent cinema, lower budget cinema. We love supporting things that aren't corporate here at Serial at Midnight. This fits the bill. This is a a director, a filmmaker creating something basically completely independently with uh, very limited financing and making something that he is now touring the country with. This is. I, I believe in this is what I'm trying to say. So I hope that you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, Mr. J.R. Bookwalter. And so that's why what I love what you're doing, you, you've got a movie, you've made a movie again, we're going to talk about it, but you're also, you're going to tour it. Not You're going to tour it theatrically, which is incredible to me. Well, not even that, but I'm actually like denying anybody the uh, the opportunity to buy it physically or to stream it. Like deliberately saying you can't have this. Sort of deliberately, yeah. Well, well. So why? Okay, why? Why would you? Given where you're coming from, given your history with home media, why? Well, I mean, it goes back because I've made a movie in 23 years, a feature. I mean, I've produced some. I've paid for to have other people make stuff, things like that. But the problem, you know, 23 years ago, we had Blockbuster, we had Hollywood Video, we had Tower Records, we had Family Video, we had still mom and pop shops around you had best buy i mean all those places at one time or another carried some of my movies they didn't carry all of them but they carried a lot of them and then you had you know direct sales and stuff like that too now ev almost everybody that i just named including best buy is out of the physical media business so the, the when i was making after i made the shot the movie last year it was kind of like well what the hell am i going to do with this thing now because I don't know how to sell a new movie. I mean, I've dabbled in it a little bit through Makeflix and Tepe Digital. I've put out some stuff that had never been available before or was of newer vintage. And um, usually the sales are not fabulous. I mean, they do they might do okay, but you don't, you don't see any significant numbers in it. Even, no matter how hard you market it or whatever you do, it's just people are just, everybody wants to watch stuff on streaming. Everybody wants to get their phone and watch Tubi or whatever else. And if you don't... Can I ask you about that really quick? Because yeah. I think a lot of physical media fans, which is a lot of who watches my channel, are always surprised that there are a lot of people that watch. I don't know if they realize how many people are watching streaming. Most people are watching streaming, correct? Oh, no, I mean, that's that's where anybody discovers a new movie now. If it's not playing in the theaters, you're seeing it on Tubi or some other streaming mm -hmm. service. I mean, that's, that's it. That's the way new movies get discovered. And, you know, I, I was sort of like being an old school guy. I mean, don't at first I should put this disclaimer out first. I 
love streaming. I have a huge digital collection that I've been cultivating over some, you know a number of years, and I watch stuff on streaming. So I'm not a snob. It's not about that. It's just I remember the experience of watching it, things a different way, you know. And I still like going to the theater. I mean, I've got, there'll be times where I don't go to the theater and things like that. And I love collecting physical media too. But at some point, like you're what's behind you there, you run out of shelf space. You yeah. have to being selective so People i don't, know. don't see so this looks so nice behind me right but around me it's stacked up like this yeah. high i'm in a rectangle that you can <laughs> this is the only area of this room i can walk into it's i'm out of room it's yeah. terrible. well that's yeah. what happens and then it's like what are you gonna do you can't you don't want then you start going through and go well i don't need this i don't need this i mean right. you don't do that either so so anyways it just came about like how to how to market a new movie and i thought well geez why don't we just go back and and you know see if we can play it in a dozen theaters or something and just for fun and see if, you know, that way, if people come and see it, then you got kind of got your audience already for when the, you know, release it on physical media. So that was kind of the, the impetus of, of how it even came to pass. The movie is side effects may vary. Uh, it, it clearly have, I, I got to see it. Thank you for letting me see the film. Um, it seems very rooted in the pandemic and what came out of the pandemic. How did you, I guess my first question is why now? Why why after 23 years were you like it is time to get back in the filmmaking back in the filmmaking saddle and do this thing again? Cuz yeah. I asked you about it a couple of years ago and you were like I have no plans right now. No, that's it. I mean, I've been telling people for two decades that now nah, I don't think I'm going to do it again. That's it. Yeah. And it was I I'm not doing it again or just, you know, whatever. Um part of it was like I have these colleagues, James Edwards, who's started a number of my films and is now an accomplished filmmaker on his own. I mean, he, he we would get together for lunch frequently. And every time I think he would ask me, you don't feel like doing it again. You're not like interested in getting back out there and doing it again. I'm like, nah, nah, nah. And I don't know what it was. I mean, I always in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, yeah, you know, if this was because the thing with me is I'm not one of these people that's going to go raise half a million dollars from somebody and go out and irresponsibly make a movie that I know these people are never going to get their money back or I'm not going to spend my own significant chunk of money if I had it to to go to, to do the same thing. So I'm what you would call the responsible indie filmmaker because I'm trying to, you know, you have to do it at, at a budget where you can reasonably get your money back. And even I mean, honestly, even these guys making five, $10,000 movies are not getting their money back these days because it's just the, the, the industry is not set up for it. So that's sort of the long story is I, I guess I just sort of came to the conclusion that, well, you know, maybe I should, you know, I sort of sensed a trend with make flicks and some of the releases I was doing that I'm like, maybe I don't want to keep just selling the old stuff. And then there was also the issue of like, okay, when I run out of all my catalog stuff, what am I going to do then? I mean, granted, you can always pick up more stuff, but my films personally. So I, that that was the other thing. I was like, well, at some point, I'm probably going to have to make something. So why not, you know, make it now? And the the idea was just to make it to sell on Makeflix. It was started as a really much smaller project than we originally intended to uh, to do. And it just sort of blossomed a little bit into uh, something a little bit bigger, not huge, but... I want to know how things changed between 23 years ago and now. Obviously, you've still been connected with filmmakers. You've still been, you know, uh, involved in the the creation of films, but you hadn't been behind the um, the director's chair. Is is it different? Is it different doing it now than it was? I know technology's got to be a little different, right? 
Well, the directing part of it hasn't changed. What changed, I because I, I actually, in, in addition to directing and editing and doing all the post sound in this movie, I got those wild hair up my butt that I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to shoot it and light it as well. Like kind of, this is basically a sort of a return to the ozone days where I kind of. But did... I thought Lance Randis was the director of photography. Uh, for... Of course. <laughs> he is. It's a big return for him too. Yeah, yeah. I missed that guy. But that's where the majority of the changes were, is just the technology. You know, I was used to, back in the days, we used to have these big lights, like these 2K lights and all this ridiculous stuff. I mean, we had lights that were so old. When I shot The Dead Next Door, we had some lights that we had inherited from uh, the Renaissance Pictures boys in Detroit, you know, that had been used on Evil Dead and other stuff. Wow. When you would plug them in, you would get like, you know, like it would, you'd get a jolt because the stuff was just so old and had been... Wow heating it down and but so you know and then those lights are really bright and really hot all that's those old quartz lights that we used to use and now they have all these led lights they don't they get hardly i mean you can touch them and they're a little bit warm but that's it and they're so much more efficient and they can do multiple colors you don't even need to get out gels and all this stuff so i mean in that regard the technology has changed dramatically as far as what you can do with lighting how you do it um just the size of the cameras and all that stuff. I mean, I, you know, obviously I am well known for shooting a lot of shot on video movies. So I've always kind of pushed the envelope in that regard. But the thing is the, when I set out to do shot on video in 1991 with Kingdom of the Vampire, the technology was not where it, I would have liked it to be. So I always got kicked around because it's like, Oh, you, you know, you shot this on super VHS or whatever, you know, you're making these little things, with whatever you got well now the technology is caught up where you can actually make a movie that looks pretty spectacular on mm -hmm. you know, very limited resources so it's kind of interesting that in that regards it took 30 years or whatever to, to finally catch up it kind yeah. of caught up with what i was uh trying to do all along you're a visionary that's what you're saying yeah. you you were you saw the you saw where technology was you're the, you're the george lucas of your era that's that's kind of yeah. what i think Porter movies yeah maybe i don't know I'll Did, take... You shot on film, right? You got to shoot a few things on film, right? Yeah, my early, my first three movies were Super 8 and 16, and then I did a full moon movie in 2000 called Witch House 2, Blood Coven, which was shot in Romania on 35mm. How did you like shooting on film? Because I know it's a very different, more temperamental thing. Um, was it, did, do you like the way, did you like shooting on film? Well, it's very stressful because, especially yeah. in the case of Witch House 2, um, we only had so much film and it was kind of like, okay, I, I, you shoot a take and then it's like, do I shoot another take or am I going to run out of film at the end of this? You know, you're, you know, you're only shooting a handful of days on top of that. The, the way I got around it with that movie was I, because of the Blair Witch hysteria at the time I had, I had built into the script, some scenes that were actually shot on a camcorder. So that's, it was kind of cheating a little bit because then I was able to get more coverage and more takes uh, and and make it up make up for it with the, the scenes that were shot on a camcorder so but it's stressful I mean it's always stressful whether I was shooting my first film the dead next door on super 8 or, or robot ninja and skin alive on 16 millimeter you know you the film is money it's cost money to buy it it costs money to expose it and it costs money to develop it you know to, to process it so you know it's just cost 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 where digital and in even to some regards uh, the old tape days you know, Tape is expensive too, but yeah. not not as much as film. But digital, you could just 
you know, as long as you have SD cards or whatever, you could just keep going. Mm -hmm. I've heard horror stories about people that shot something on film. Like you shoot a whole day and then it goes to the lab to get processed. And when you see it, you're like, oh, this is wrong. It's like exposure. It's, it's improperly developed or something like that. And you've lost, you know, who knows how many minutes of a film that you have to go do again if you can do it again, in some cases you'd have to tinker around with the, the film and, uh, and get it back to where you kind of wanted it to go. It's, it just sounds like a nightmare, honestly, working and it looks great, but as far as, uh, wasn't it, I think De Palma's blowout was the one where they had lost like a whole day or two days worth of, they had to literally, they had an insurance claim and they had to go back and reshoot yeah. all. And it's like big, that big scene in the parade in Philadelphia and all that towards the end of the movie. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I I would just be like, God, you gotta be kidding me. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, that to me, I, that would be the worst thing that, that could happen. But no, it's it's stressful, but it's uh at the same time, the thing about film that I learned early on, and specifically with Robot Ninja, was there's so much latitude to film that the way you envision it, you know, a, 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 a somebody else at a lab could see it completely differently. And that's exactly what happened with the original VHS release. They color timed it completely wrong and completely the opposite of what I had set out, you know, to do. And thankfully I had the chance all these years later to go back and restore it, but you don't, you know, that's not always a chance that you get, you know, those film elements right. could have lost the time or whatever. So the film is fragile in, in some regards and it's, and it's not maybe the filmmaker's best friend all the time, because if it's taken out of your hands, it could, you know, turn into whatever, you know, you know, something you don't want. You were talking about the pressure of uh, of making a movie, especially on film. But I want to talk to you about about Sam Raimi and that whole thing because you know there are going to people who watch this that have no idea that Sam Raimi was involved in the development of one of your films. Can we go back and we're going to talk about the new? But I want to talk about the beginnings too because we've seen your early short films that you you know you have this wonderful release um, where you chronicle all your eight millimeter stuff and then leading up to really the director that we know now, then the professional career takes over. Could you just kind of tell me how Sam Raimi was involved in that and what, like, I want to know if that came with a lot of pressure is what I want to know. Actually, you know, because I was young, I, I would say the, the short answer to that is no, I didn't feel wow. any, any pressure in that regards. It, here's the reason why, because I, I like to say I tripped into that, situation because i went to detroit looking to be a, just a production assistant on evil dead 2 which wasn't quite ready to shoot it was an early early prep at that point and showed him showed them some of my short films and just got to talking with them and that just sort of led to the you know sam sitting me down and asking me the question well why don't you go make your own movie because and the thing i found out later well i guess i knew it at the time but i didn't realize it till later sam loves shooting on super eight and he had made his own super eight movies so when he watched my stuff he it was like a kindred spirit thing like he'd always wanted i found out later he'd always wanted to make a feature on super eight and he came close a couple times there was one called it's murder which was longer but i think it was like maybe 40 minutes or 45 minutes or something like that so he had never actually taken the plunge so when i came walking in i think he saw this opportunity like you know oh, I could get this guy to do a feature on Super 8 and I could puppeteer it from behind the scenes, even though we weren't initially shooting on Super 8. When I approached him, it was literally going to be shot for a few thousand dollars on, on VHS video because that's all I had access to. Mm -hmm. 
time. And then it sort of just ballooned from there. But no, I, that was, I went in with one intention. I didn't go in there and pitch him. That was the thing. I never, you know, I wasn't pitching my filmmaking abilities. I was just like, look, I could be of some value on your set. You know, I could bring people coffee. I could do, you know, and he, to his credit, he saw something other than that, you know, in my spirit or in my personality that he was the one that sort of said, no, you should, you know, cause I told him I was, I was my, didn't really have a plan because I dropped out of the art institute of Pittsburgh and I was just being a bum. And he was, he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I was thinking about doing commercials or something like the, you know, the way George Romero and those guys in Pittsburgh had done it. And uh, he's like, well, I think you should make your own feature. And if you, if you come up, you know, put something together, let me know, I might kick some money into it. And I'm like, okay. So I had a four hour drive back from Detroit to, to Akron, Ohio. Um, with that ringing in my head and that was where i basically like pictured the whole idea for dead next door and exactly what i was going to pitch to him and you know a couple weeks later had a script had a little five-page investment proposal and he true to his word he he did what he said it's incredible that's an incredible story it's it's a one once in a lifetime thing that's uh that's just i mean i, I chalk it up to sheer luck honestly it was just well, it is luck but you what he sees in you, I see in you too. You are a born filmmaker and you see it, you know, we've talked a little there's bit about, a, there's a lot of people who would disagree with that. But thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm watching this new movie, right? And within the first 30 seconds, I go, okay, this has something other movies like this don't have your attention to detail, your eye, the way you, the way you use color, the gels, the angles that you use, you have a very ambitious, very cinematic, sensibility and you always have this is the thing is like i see it in the stuff you're doing you were a kid too and that's what i, I really connect with it um i understand that i look, i'm gonna tell people i'm gonna pull the curtain back a little bit and say that we were emailing and i said like your spielbergian childhood made me really jealous and you're like well i don't know how spielbergian it was but you had a love of movies that was like oozing out of your pores and you see it like anybody can see it they can see your passion for this Everybody doesn't have that passion. Some people just want, they're like, eh, we'll go walk around the woods and we'll make something. We'll just do something. You have a very cinematic passion and it comes through in all you do. And I bet he saw that when you walked in and started talking. I bet he could see like, this kid's hungry because you were and you still are all these years later. I for sure was. I mean, there's, there's no, and thank you, by the way. But I mean, I hear that a lot that, that, that you know, people see that whatever that quality in me. So I, I can't, you know, I won't sit here and try and dispute it, but I mean, I was raised at a really good time. You know, I was 11 years old. Star Wars first came out. That was very influential. I, you know, prior to that, I, we had late night horror hosts in Cleveland, Ohio that I watched all, you know, all these great movies growing up. Um, you know, I had dark shadows and syndication. I mean, all this, I was just with like, my eyeballs were just like, you know, Give me all of it. I want to watch everything. Yeah. You know, and, and all the magazines, famous monsters, and Bangor. I mean, it was just a very good time to to grow up and and ha you know have those interests and that stuff. So, I'm sure a lot of it was just that influence of all these right. things that I just kind of latched onto. And I and I and I watch movies in a. I'm one of those people I don't like people talking through movies. Sometimes, you know, like my family had to learn that early on, like with, with my kids. It's like, no, we don't talk during the movie. We have to watch them. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I study the movie. That's the thing. It's like, what what makes this work? Why is this shot? Why does this shot make me feel this certain way? Or why does this scene make me 
feel the certain way, you know? So that, I think that's where it comes from. It's just absorbing all that stuff. Yeah. And some people watch Star Wars and they just enjoy it. You see Star Wars and you want to go make your own Star Wars. Oh, that's it. I mean, I was like, yeah. dude, you know, I mean, and I, thankfully, I, we, you know, my friend David Barton and I, who who I grew up with as a Star Wars fan, you know, we would we our so, answer to that was to get our Star Wars figures out and start animating them on yeah. Super. You know, stop. We learned how to do stop motion animation and all, and they were horrible. But that wasn't the point. That was the the humble beginnings, you know. And then you eventually you start. You know, I, mean, I, for, I probably did more tributes to things that I grew up loving, but I know I see that in a lot of filmmakers too. Everybody takes, you know, they take what they enjoyed uh, as a kid, and you know, you know, they try to put those influences in their their later work, and you know, that's just the way it is. Everybody's influenced. There's nothing original, so you kind of have to make it original by pulling yes. from this, pulling from that, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, and you have you you learn by doing it too, and that's one of the things that I enjoy about watching your movies as well. Is I can see the progression, I can see how everything builds on what you've learned. And um, there's been a few detours in there though along the way. Yeah, I got yeah. like, sidetracked. You know, I'm the first person. I'm my own worst critic, so I'm you know. If I, we'll talk about that. Let's talk a little about about a little bit about the detours. Like, what do you mean? Because people might be like, "What's he talking about?" Well, I mean, the SOV six pack was the probably the most legendary detour, um, just because I, you know, I had had shot Dead Next Door on Super Eight, I shot a couple sixteen movies, and then I got this crazy idea to, oh, I can make movies on Super VHS, and it really was just because I felt like I had to because I just wasn't getting anywhere anywhere else. You know, I had this is the bad the bad thing about sort of locking into the business is you know for a while that kind of carries you, and then if you don't have any real financial success or meet the right people then it's sort of like okay well how can i keep doing this you got to feed the addiction at that point so like, i want to make another movie let's let's figure out how to do this so out of necessity came oh i found this super vhsc camera that i can you know that i thought looked cinematic enough that i could work with it you know and with the lighting and, and stuff like that we could make it work and um that was a detour and then that that was a detour inside of a detour because we started off on the right foot with King of the Vampire and to a lesser degree zombie cop, but then we got into the chick boxer and maximum impact and you know Galaxy of the Dinosaurs and it kind of bottomed out at the end there with humanoids from Atlantis. So that was a major detour. And then I kind of had to, you know, reassess that situation and and go back and figure out what did I do wrong and rebuild with something like Ozone, which was sort of like, okay, now I'm gonna try and get back to where I was in the in the first place. Mm -hmm. To a large degree, that's what the new movie is about, too, is because I haven't made anything in so long. And and the stuff that I made prior to that was there was a lot of stuff more that I produced than than I directed. But the last movie that I made was this giant scorpion movie for Full Moon, which is what it is. I was never, you know, it, it was kind of a job and I kind of wound up walking away from it regretfully um, after it was shot and didn't really have much to do with it. But it was, I did not feel it was my best work and it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And it wasn't the kind of movie that I necessarily wanted to make. So to me, the new movie Side Effects May Vary is kind of the same thing where it's like a reboot, like I'm rebooting myself and trying to, you know, pick up where I where I think I left off, where I should have, you know, get back to where I want to be, I guess. Where do you want to be? <clears throat> well, I mean, these days I would love to, uh, television is the place to be, honestly. You know, it's a, it's a director's and actor's medium, even probably more so than, than features. I mean, I don't have any 
huge i never really had any i think when i was a kid probably i would have like oh man i would love to do what spielberg does or lucas or you know one of those guys but um i i, I really i mean i think i it, i'm less interested in the special effects part of it and more interested in working with the actors i mean that's the thing and that and tv that would be a great medium to do that i'm not saying that i'm cut out for it or that i will do it or that that it's a a goal necessarily but um but some kind of television whether it's mine something i conceive or just something that i go and you know guest direct or whatever could you work in that system being as independently minded as you are do you think you could i, mean, I think you could but not forever because I would at some point then want to be back yeah. in control. That's the thing. It's like, I'll do it for, you know, even not when I worked for full moon, you know, I was, we were cranking stuff out there and I was, you know, but at some point, yeah, I, I get to that, that itch to like go back and be in, more in control of it. So it's not, that's what I mean. It's, it's not a long-term thing. I don't think I could do it forever. Some guys do. I mean, there's TV directors who have been doing it for as long as, you know, they've been alive. Yeah. I don't, but, I don't think I could do it. That's not you. What I know about you is that you are very singularly and creatively driven. And I mean, it's cost from from you're very clear in the special features on a lot of your releases, the physical media special features. It seems like you don't always get along with people. You have a vision. You want your vision. And some people are like, well, that guy was really rough to work for. But <laughs> that's what a creative that's what makes, a, you know, a uh, that I'm trying to avoid using auteur, but that's the kind of thing, right? Because like, I know what I want and I'm not going to stop until I get it. That's not a part of the machine. Like I, I have a hard time seeing you as part of a larger team because you are a creator and creators have to create. Well, I mean, I've, I've worked plenty. I mean, filmmaking is it just in general is you're working with the team because the you collaborative effort, right? Unless you, are directing nature videos that you're going <laughs> to be working with other people. And that's, yeah. uh, that's what a lot of people I think don't, you know, because I, I would not necessarily consider myself a people person or a social butterfly or any of that stuff. But um, you've learned over the, over the years, how to work with people. And, and uh, I mean, honestly, I'll be most of directing is really just being a therapist to some degree or a psychologist. It's, it's just figuring out, okay, this is what I want from these people. How can I, get it from them without, you know, smacking them on the head with a hammer and say, do it my way. You know, you have to figure out more gracefully, figure out how to get what you want from people and as well as deal with any baggage that they're bringing to the set. You know, everybody's people show up like they had a bad night the night before, or the, you know, their makeup wasn't great in the morning or what, whatever, whatever it is. It's like you're dealing with personalities. That's what it is. Yeah. So I mean, you, there's no way around that. So you just have to just figure out how to, you know, forge the path. And that's on top of everything else. It's like, then how are we going to get the footage that we need so that this thing cuts together? I mean, it, when you, when I, I start talking about it, it's like, boy, this is a lot of work. <laughs> it is. How long was the shoot for, uh, for the new film? Well, I didn't want to rush it. I didn't want to do it full moon. Like, you know, most of those full moon movies were less than a week that they were yeah. shot in. And that's pretty merciless. And since I was, going to be shooting it and lighting it. I knew that was going to slow things down to some degree. So we did, what we did is we shot um, about a week, seven days over spring break of last year. And I, did, I picked spring break because my family, my kids were out of school. My wife took off work. So I was able to like, it was a very family affair. They were part of my crew. Like my son literally was like my boom operator holding the microphone. I trained him how to do it. Um, 
during that during that steamy scene was he the boom operator no, during that? I don't know. That was the one okay. day. It was not. He was not a lot of. <laughs> That's their favorite part of the movie. They're like, wow. Yeah, I know exactly. But my wife, you know, was she designed most of the sets. Uh, you know, that was responsible for decorating everything and and uh, for feeding the cast and crew. You know, so it really was a, a family fair in that regards. But then because the weather wasn't so nice, we didn't do a lot. Of, we didn't do much as far as outside stuff. So then in May we kind of picked up and did another seven or eight days. So I think it was like 15 days total, wow. which is enough time to do it right. I think for, for that, I mean, again, you're talking about James and I came up with the idea and we made it so that we knew we could shoot it. Essentially. Yeah. The, the one question mark is always the makeup effects because you never know what you're going to get into with that. And we did have a lot of drama with the makeup effects, but um, we wanted to make it so that, we could it was manageable and that we knew we could do it in the and i think 15 days was the perfect schedule i mean would i have loved to shoot more sure if i had you know, the, the resources i would have done it but right. i think that was a that was a good schedule for that show talk to me about the i wanted to ask you about the makeup effects because they're incredible first of all they look great what kind of problems did you have well they came with a lot of growing pains because i had the first guy i hired to do them who took half of the effects budget which wasn't much to begin with but he um, he only worked two days in the first week because that's all the only two days we had effects. But um, he basically just was didn't rise to the occasion, let's say, and it didn't did not work out. I mean, we got some stuff out of him, like the there's the shot in the trailer where James pulls the mask off and his his mouth is starting to rot away. Um, there's a couple. He, I'm not saying that everything he did was bad, but you know, it just wasn't working out. So then I kind of had to turn to a secret weapon. It turns out I had a couple crew members that, who were already working on the movie that had some degree of makeup effects experience. They were not, the thing I found that it's, which is weird to me because when I was doing these movies before 23 years ago, everybody wanted to be a makeup effects. Everybody wanted to be Tom Savini. You know what I mean? Everybody knew how yeah. to do all that stuff. The, the, the so-called makeup effects guys now, a lot of them don't even know how to sculpt or cast a head or make appliances and all that. It's crazy to me that, I mean, I was doing that stuff when I was a kid. Is it because it's a different world and everything's digital now, maybe? Probably. I think a lot of it is they just show up and they can spray blood around. And I'm like, well, you don't need a makeup effects artist for that necessarily. Yeah. But, so anyway, so uh, the, there was a gal, Emily Sammons, who worked on, who was already on the crew doing straight makeup. And she, um, she had gone to Tom Savini school and had graduated and everything, but just never really felt the the pull to get into that kind of thing. She just wasn't, you know, wasn't interested in pursuing it after she had went out of school. Um, so she kind of rose to the occasion. And there was another guy, David Milchick, who had done some stuff um, on the first day of the shoot. We, we, the first day we shot the opening of the movie, which is in that lab set. Um, and he had built some, you know, he, the one that had splattered blood around and stuff for that. So those two really kind of like took the bull by the horns and made it work from there because the, the second half of the shoot was where the majority of the effects were. That's where, you know, the lead characters walking around and looking all melty and everything else. So they, yeah. they saved my butt, <laughs> but even then, I mean, a lot of the stuff because they were just kind of figuring it out as they went, a lot of stuff didn't work out. You know, we, we had, um, feet that we had made for for james to walk around in because he's walking around outside you know but it had to look like you know they weren't like he wasn't wearing shoes like you know? hobbit feet yeah he's supposed to be bare feet but yeah. uh 
so that, you know, that didn't work out the first try. We eventually figured it out and got it. Um, the thing I think that saved us to a large degree is there's this great stuff called blood slime. It's sort of like, you know, that slime that you always see in movies, but it's already colored like blood. And man, you could just put that stuff on just about anything. And if you photograph it right, it, it really looks fabulous. So, wow. oh, it they had a happy ending. That's the, the bottom line. I wasn't sure even when I we shot everything if, if it was how it was going to turn out it wasn't until i cut was cut everything together and you know i the one thing i will always pat myself on the back of, about is my editing skills i do think that i can take almost anything and make it look you know make it move at least um yeah. in editing so um so that's what you know any any shortcomings that we might have had on set we were able to you know i was able to fix when it came time to actually cut it together how was it to work with James uh, after all these years to direct James? Um, well, it had been a while. Uh, Polymorph, I think, was the last that was the last time that was 1996, the last time that he had written a script for me and that and also starred in it. So it was quite a while, quite a long time. I mean, we'd done other stuff together, but there was a long period of time where we were, were not in touch together and didn't really get back in touch until he made his movie. Her name is Krista, his first mm -hmm. movie. He struck me as a very, he knows what he wants too. You know, he seems like he's very driven, very focused. So I was just wondering how that, how you guys gelled on this project. Even you're creating it together. I mean, screenplay credit to him, um, producer credit to him. You guys you truly collaborated to make this happen. Oh no, it definitely was. I mean, he's, he's a much more stubborn person than I am in that, in the regards of like, I want what I want, but I think he knew, you know, he started, with me on dead next door he was like 12 years old you know as yeah. a production assistant so i think he was willing to let me sort of come in even after you know directing two other movies on his own he was willing to sort of let you know he take that feedback and my input on stuff well for one because i was the one that was you know bankrolling the thing in the first place so he, he didn't really have a choice but um no we we got together and once I told him that I was ready to do it and I, I kind of threw out an idea of, of something that I want, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, it was the, probably the best collaboration I've ever had, honestly, in terms of getting developing the script. And it was very fast. I, the one thing he, he really wanted to rush into writing the script and I was very much wanted to do a series of treatments like story, you know, like short story versions of it, a couple page things just to hammer out all the details. I didn't want to, because I don't like to get into the script. Once you get into the script, then it gets kind of complicated and you start making changes and pulling stuff out. It just yeah. gets kind of screwy. So he was a little like gnashing his teeth, like, you know, oh, I got to, I'm going to, you're making me do too many treatments. I'm like, no, 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 this is, this is how we're going to develop this thing. This is how, but once we, once we agreed on it, I mean, the script came, he, I think he was the January of last year. He's like, oh, I'll have it by the end of January. And he had it like January 9th, something like that. I mean, he wrote it very wow. fast. It was the and it, the first draft didn't change. There was a few logistical things and the bedroom scene, uh, which you've already seen, nobody else has seen yet. But that was the only thing that we kind of didn't see eye to eye on, just because some of the stuff that happens in there, I wanted it to be very specific. And he was looking to go in a different direction. And I, all I will say is that it turned out exactly the way that I wanted it. So <laughs> okay, you lost, lost that fight. <laughs> he likes it. i mean he's he's very happy with that scene even that scene too so so no it was um you know we went right from that into you know him switching gears into a, you know a lead role in it and it was funny because we would 
I'd be shooting certain things and I'd be thinking, you know, like a take would be rolling and I'd be thinking, oh, I wish he would do that. And he would just do it. And I think it's partially because we both were on the same page. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Oh, eye to eye on the, but that, but also the fact that we had done so much work together in the past, it was really just like riding a bike, as they always say, you know, you just get, you get back on the bike and, you know, it just worked out fabulously really i mean i had no complaints in that regard is he the bruce campbell to your sam raimi yeah well i mean he takes a lot of abuse in this movie yeah, I've, shown it, I've shown it to some mutual friends that we have and they're like oh my gosh i can't believe he let you do that to him and it's like well you know he wrote it if he ever he never complained never not once on the set but if he would even make a comment that sounded like he might complain i would always be right there going well you wrote it you, you know if you didn't want to do it you shouldn't have written it that's right but no, more familiar. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was gonna say it was it was a beautiful collaboration. I I have nothing but but praise for you know that part of it as far as writing and and acting. It was we were just you know there was no butting of heads. We were simpatico, as they say. And that's great. You got some more familiar faces in the film as well. You got Tina Krause. You've got Sasha Graham, Brink Stevens. And uh, he's got a very interesting role. That yes, he does, yeah. She's done hundreds of movies at this point, but you, uh, trust me when I tell you, you have not seen her in a role like this before. Mm -mm. It, uh, I think I really chomping at the bit to have people see this just to get their, see how they react to her performance in this movie. So how was she? So have you, you, have you directed her before? Oh yeah. She was in, uh, she was Lilith in Witch House 3 and she's been in a, we've, we've done a lot of stuff together. I mean, I think directing wise, well, she did a cameo in, in Deadly Stingers, the, giant scorpion thing as well so we've yeah we've we've had you know we've been friends for since i think 1990 is when i first met her so a long time but uh no she's great because she brink comes fully prepared she knows all of her lines she doesn't even doesn't have doesn't need sides and she'll just she knows exactly she's all she wants to know is where am i where am i going to stand and what do you and you know how, how am i how do you want me to feed off of the other person and mm -hmm. she just she's a pro man she just knocks it out so that makes it very easy in terms of, you know, a lot of actors, they might have their hand up here in one take and they're down here in another take. And then you're like, oh, crap, how am I going to cut this? You know, the continuity right. is all out of whack. No, Brink is, she knows exactly what, and, and if you give her feedback, she's very quick and and, and uh, enthusiastic about rolling that into it, too. She doesn't get, some actors, you will give them feedback that they weren't planning on and they're like, oh, crap, how do I incorporate this in what I'm doing? But she's... Mm -hmm. She's not that at all. She's a how doll. Are, She's a doll. How are you describing this movie to people? Because we want them to go see it. How are you describing it? Um. Gosh, I guess that's a. For me, <laughs> what inspired the movie in the first place is I my uh, obsessive childhood love for the Incredible Melting Man. That was really what inspired this thing. And and then when I and when I sat down with James at lunch. And came up with this i said i want to do my own version you know my own take on that movie that's what i want to do i said but instead of setting it in space we got to figure something else out because we can't do space and you know we i i, well, I didn't want it to be a literal ripoff we wanted to make it our own thing and which we did and i think we've actually like this story-wise and just you know that there it goes way beyond what even the that movie did yeah. so um for me it was about the all the stuff I grew up watching in the fifties with that whole like atomic hysteria, you know, giant tarantulas and giant this and giant that mm -hmm. that's what I wanted to do with it. And to me, it was just like, but set it during a pandemic and make it sort of, I like, 
Well, I guess the first thing I should say is I have a, a general distrust of uh, government and science in general. And I've shown that in my other movies, Dead Next Door in particular, you know, with the, the protesters against the, you know, for zombie rights and the, the serum that the doctor makes and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of that, a lot of the stuff in side effects goes right back to to that movie in particular. So, um, but also I, I'm have become anti-corporation because the corporations, I feel like they're just squeezing the life out of everything that they get their hands on. And uh, so that was really, I mean, if, if I had a, a mission statement, I guess, when I made the movie, I, I this is really, I mean, the thing is it, it's a fun movie. I mean, that's, and I don't, it doesn't get bogged down in any of the stuff I'm talking about. I mean, the one thing everybody says when they watch it is like, Oh my gosh, that was so much fun. It's yeah. like, that's, that's was the intention. This is a piece of entertainment. This is not uh it's not supposed to make any topical. I mean, it's social satire in the Romero style, I guess, if that's where you want to, you know, the, the, I always loved the stuff that Romero would put in his movies, you know, that where he would be talking about, you know, consumerism, Dawn, you know, and Dawn of the Dead and things like that. I mean, it, that's as far as it goes. It's mm -hmm. just, there's some of that, a lot of that stuff in there, but, but really it's just, it's a, it's a, I call it a big goofy melting man, you know, tribute i guess yeah. <laughs> it is really really fun and it, but it is also a movie for right now well yeah i mean i wanted to make it topical i just yeah. I, I don't know because i i am an observer of people and i saw a lot of craziness during the pandemic as we all did you know we all lived it and most of hope thankfully most of us survived it and but you see how humans behave in general and it's and it makes for interesting like, oh, we could, you know, we could pull from this, we could pull from that, that would be, you know, that would be fun. So to make it sort of, t I know a lot of people have seen in recent years, uh, there's been a lot of like pandemic horror movies, yeah. but not, but not like this one. I think this is no. a completely unique animal in terms of, you know, if you're, if you're fatigued by the pandemic and don't want to hear about it anymore, maybe it's not the movie for you, but it's not, about the pandemic it's just set during the pandemic is the way i like to describe it i guess yeah yeah that's true that's it's not about the pandemic but there is a pandemic in the movie and it is really fun i want to encourage like it's fun it's really really fun and your uh your anti-corporate stuff is a message that rings really true to me because in the last few years you know i'm gen x we're we've always been kind of anti-corporate but what we're watching right now is the corporations taking over the entire world and there's a song that plays in the film and I won't spoil it for anybody, but it is so satirically accurate for where we're at right now. And that people need to go see the movie just for that song. For no and credit song. Yep. That's my boy, Andy Preboy from the second generation of Wall of Voodoo. He was the lead singer. And, and that song's actually not new. That's an older song that he did some years back. It's Can called we tell people like, no, we wanted to go see the movie. No, we no, no. To... Go download it on, uh, All on right. or whatever. It's, it's called all, ha all hail the corporation. And, and I, that to me was, I started going through and like, uh, figuring out what, how do I want to end this movie, you know, on what kind of note. And it's, you know, I, I, I love the ending for it, but it, that song is sort of like this, the capper on the, it's like the, you know, the icing on the cake, I guess. There's that, and then there's your post-credit sequence, the very end of the thing, which is just like, well, it's just this little yeah, and you, get, you get a little taste of that in the trailer, but you don't, you don't get the full. Right. Yeah, that was yeah. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun to do, actually.
Yeah. You, th hey, that's your, that's how you, you can do commercials too. You know, there's your commercial uh, aspirations coming through. People are like, what's he talking about? There's like a commercial. Of, uh, uh, well, I put that stuff in there too. I think um, also <laughs> because I, I, a lot of people tend to just turn movies off when the credits roll. Yeah. And I was like, no, I want them to watch all that. You have to watch all the way to the end, even in the, you know, in the theater, don't get up, don't leave. You know, you got to sit all the way. Of course they're going to sit all the way. And I hope to, to see us, talk about the movie after at least in the, the the road show but when even when you watch it on streaming or whatever you know you gotta you gotta make it all the way through okay unless, so let's talk about the road show unless you just don't like it and then you can just turn it off and no worry. no you gotta stay you gotta watch all the way to the very very end because it's worth it talk about the road show uh you're going out with this movie you're you're taking it around yeah well it's kind of snowballed into something a little bigger than what maybe i had first intended um because we were just thinking, now if we could get a dozen theaters to show this thing, that would be great. And I think we're already up to twenty-one or twenty-two. Wow! And there's more, you know, in in the works as well. So the first week we're going to do um, every night. It's Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, uh, Calicoon, which is in oh no, I'm sorry, Philadelphia. Then Calicoon, which is in the Catskills, New York, and then. Uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, and Baltimore, Maryland. So that's like the first six days. And then we're going to be all through Ohio in February. And then I'm going out west in uh, March. We'll do New Orleans and Dallas and Austin. And we've got Minneapolis and Kansas City and Wichita. And there's a lot more to come still. I mean, there's we're trying to get it. We put out a thing on social media that was like, where do you want to see this? You know, they don't most most people didn't, hadn't seen anything except the the first teaser trailer. But we were like, tell us your favorite theaters. Tell us where you want to where you like to watch independent movies. And that was very helpful because then we were able to sort of target. And I think we've got most of those venues. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, most of these, you know, we're not I'm not doing this old used to do a four wall theatrical thing where you would pay the theater and then you would you had to you know work on getting the people in there i'm the, we're partnering with these theaters they are they are equal partners in this whole process and they're also working their audiences to get people to come and see this so it truly is a grassroots road show we're not going through some theatrical distributor where this is all stuff that we just i kind of said wouldn't it be cool to get it in some theaters and then we just kind of willed it into existence and made it happen that's incredible. That's that's that spirit that I'm talking about. That you're uh, these are the things that set you aside from some of the other people that that do you know, make similar kinds of movies. You have this very entrepreneurial. You're always thinking ahead, and I love that. Um, where can people go to find out if you're going to be coming to there? Like the the dates and everything. Is there a place you want them to go check it out? We've kind of barfed it all over social media at this point, but I mean, it, the side effects may vary. Um, side effects may vary. Movie has an Instagram page and a Facebook page, and that stuff is all linked on there. We have a bunch of Facebook events set up for some of the early screenings, and there's there's more of that that's that's coming. Um, and we'll we'll keep you know as we add dates, we'll keep posting about it as well. This will probably go. I mean, as of right now, it's going to go at least through june because we were selected for the weekend of fear festival in germany so that's going to be the first international screening uh towards the end wow. of june and i'm actually going to go to that because that's been, been on my bucket list for many years to go to germany which is kind of exciting because i'm also uh the dead next door is being re-released in germany this year and it's the actually the first time that it has been released where it has not been banned they, they actually the company that is putting it out got it unbanned it's been banned for decades and all the releases have been like bootleg releases that have 
gone to like Denmark and Holland and different places and to get it into Germany. So that one's actually making its uh, Blu-ray debut in Germany this year as well, which is kind of cool. You should document that. You should document your Germany, your trip to Germany. Well, I Make probably will. I'm sure, I'm sure that I will. I mean, one of my colleagues on the movie was like, you, you know, somebody should be recording this roadshow because this is going to be yeah. nuts. Because <laughs> it's That's literally, a... James and I are getting that first week, especially. I mean, we're, you know, getting in a rental car and we're just driving to all these places and we're taking, you know, we got a bunch of cool merch and we're taking some of the, you know, the Blu-rays and stuff for the, and the DVDs for the movies that we made. So we'll, we'll be there and we'll, you know, we'll sign stuff. And if people want to bring their, you know, old VHS copies or whatever they got, you know, we'll, we'll be happy to sign it for them. And, you know, it'll be, it's kind of like a convention on wheels. You know, that's what we're, it's like, I've done conventions plenty of times in the past, but this is a more specific animal. We're just, I, I really want people to come out and see it in the theater, see it on the big screen because, you know, don't, don't wait for it to be on Tubi where you watch it on your phone. Let's, you know, let's. And you say no physical media. There's not going to be physical media for this. Well, there's I'm, there's one exception to that. On the roadshow, I'm actually going to have, and I'll try and hold it up. I think it would probably be too blurry, but we, uh, one of my colleagues made this very cool, this collector's edition VHS, which we haven't even announced. This is nice. a serial at midnight exclusive. Hey! Um, but uh, yeah, this is a slick piece of something here, but that's the only way. If you want to see, if you want to own it, you're going to have to buy it on VHS for right now because it won't be probably um, the disc release maybe for black friday this year if if you know we'll see but okay streaming will be even further because i'm i'm just gonna i'm withholding sorry everyone that's that's waiting for streaming you're gonna have to wait <laughs> but i will say when the disc comes out because i shot and finished this movie uh 4k hdr we i am this will be my first 4k blu-ray i can tell you that so Nice is, is what I so I think the way I watched it I think it was in 4K and it yeah. looked yeah, really true. really good and that's the thing too that I, a lot of horror movies now are very like dour and dark and just sort of like flat looking and just not yeah. interesting I mean they're they're lit well they're made well but they just sort of like don't do anything for me you know it's just very like lit, the look of it and so I wanted the opposite of that I wanted something that was like almost obnoxious in how bold and bright and colorful it was. Yeah, boy, I got it. <laughs> yeah, that was intention, and it, it definitely is that. I mean, I I like to call it because between that and the music score and the the five point one surround mix, it's very a bombastic movie. It's just sort of like it's not so much in your face. It's not obnoxious. It's not in a in a bad way, but it's just you're not used to seeing stuff like this now because you know most of the movies don't look like this. This looks like, I mean, in, in many ways, it is a throwback to you know an older type of movie i think that's a good place to leave it i think i think that's that's our out right there uh we want people to go check out make flicks um where else where else do you want people to go you follow on social media you want to shout out anything um yeah, i'm easy to find on social media i'm just jr bookwalter pretty much everywhere yeah. uh make flicks is uh on uh twitter facebook is just make flicks we recently had our instagram account get deactivated so that's we're now back with Makeflix movies instead of Makeflix store from that for that one avenue. And then the side effects may vary. Movie is the Facebook and Instagram and Threads business. If you want to follow the flick, 
I'm going to hawk your book too, because if people have been intrigued by what you've been talking about here, you have walked us through the craft of B-movie filmmaking through your book. And uh, I want to shout this out because it's, it's more like chronicling all of my mistakes. <laughs> so that's the way I like, but I mean, that's the stuff that people want, right? You know, it's through mistakes that we learn and become better than we were. So yeah. one of these days I'll get around to writing the follow-up to that because that covers the first 10 movies, but it yeah. leaves, leaves a lot of stories out. But there's a lot of lessons there for people that are interested in making movies and don't know how to do it or might don't know necessarily how to go about it. There's a lot to learn from that. Well, it's funny, too, because I've I've had some people, some guys that are sort of younger generation filmmakers read that and, and that are like their hair turns white because they're horrified of all the stuff that you used to have to do this and this. And seriously, I'm like, yeah, that's the way we used to do it. You know, you guys don't know with your nonlinear editing and your iMovie and all this, you know, Final Cut Pro, all this stuff that we, you know, it was, it was a bear to make this stuff back in the day. Yeah. But it, the new movie looks great. The new movie is a ton of fun and we want to encourage people to get out and see it. Yeah. Everybody, everybody watching this should go see it. <laughs> JR, thank you. Thank you for coming back to Serial at Midnight. My pleasure. Thank you. I just love J.R. Bookwalter, I love the kind of, I love the attention and the detail that he brings to his movies. His use of color, his use of light, his use of angles. This man is a filmmaker. Uh, are filmmakers born? Are they created? I, I think J.R. Bookwalter is evidence that uh, some people are just born with the DNA to make movies. He has all of these gifts and they all uh, are, they're all in this new this new film. It's such a, a labor of uh, what well, you heard, you know, I mean, <laughs> shooting it, editing it, scoring it, doing so much stuff, uh, hands on. It's, it's this DIY spirit that really resonates with me because I have it too, obviously. Uh, so do go out and remember to hit up all the socials for, uh, for side effects may vary to find out where you can catch this movie. Hopefully they're coming to a theater in your neighborhood. Uh, also, here's how you can help Serial at Midnight. However, you're if you're getting this on podcasts, if you're getting this on YouTube, you want to review it, you want to rate it, you want to subscribe, you want to do thumbs ups when you can, you want to leave a comment, uh, you want to share it with as many people as you can. That's how you can support the Serial at Midnight podcast. Go tell all your friends about me. That's how you can do it. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, hanging out with me, checking out this episode. Uh, I do appreciate you guys, and we'll have another conversation very similar to this coming very soon. So thank you guys. I appreciate it. Take care. Till next time. I will catch you later.